Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we are going to be talking about personal growth. First up with author and psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb, she will explain the importance of occasionally delivering what she calls a compassionate truth bomb on the ones we love. Then we're going to hear some stand-up comedy from Mohanad El-Sheki about the challenges of working a retail job and also what it's like to read the Bible when you are a Muslim. Then newly minted Pulitzer Prize winner Mitchell S. Jackson will stop by to talk about writing as therapy. All that plus some music from the Brooklyn Blues and rock group Revel in Dimes that will have you experiencing all kinds of personal growth in the I'm Loving This Music department. So that is the plan. We have an amazing hour of Livewire coming your way. Don't go anywhere because it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going Great. Good. I love the 4th of July. It's one of my favorite holidays. Why? What's your favorite thing about it or what do you like about well, it? Well, I have to admit, I love fireworks. I know Ooh. the pets don't love them, Ooh. but I am turn into a five-year-old child when I am around fireworks. <laughs> and this weekend, I am going where they're going to have fireworks, and it's going to be very exciting. Do you purchase your own fireworks or do you leave that to the professionals? I just go to this field that's near where they sell all the fireworks on a Native American <laughs> reservation. And I watch everyone shoot off the fireworks they just bought. Oh, free. It's a place called Boom City, and it is very dangerous and very fun. <laughs> Speaking of things that are very dangerous and very fun, should we do live wire? Let's do it. Molly, are we recording? We are ready to go, Luke. All right. Take it away, Elena. <laughs> From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb, writer Mitchell S. Jackson, and comedian Mahanid El-Sheki, with music from Revel in Dimes. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! I played a different sound effect this week because we've got Fourth of July weekend going on. This boom ba man! Thank you, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to LiveWire. Uh, we have a great show in store for you this week. We asked the LiveWire listeners a question. We asked them, tell us what your most unpopular opinion is. I have a feeling, mm -hmm. Elena, with the listeners, my love of fireworks is going to be my most unpopular 
mm. opinion, too. They're going to remind me that the pets hate it. But we're going to hear what the listeners said their most unpopular opinion is coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, so this is one of those news stories that starts out not sounding like good news. So just okay. bear with me. Okay. All right. We got to go to England, the UK, to Cheshire, right. where appropriately enough, this family has a cat. Not the Cheshire cat, but a cat named Frankie. He's 16 okay. years old, goes in and out, and then one day last month, Frankie disappeared and they couldn't find him and they were driving down the road this family the Fitzsimmons family and they saw a cat that uh really looked a lot like Frankie that had been hit by a mm. car and so they called the police and the pol- or they called somebody roadside assistance or somebody who retrieved the cat and said yeah it matches the description you gave us but it's kind of hard to know but yeah and then to make the the two children of the family who were 7 and 10 have some sense of closure they decided to pay to have the cat's ashes sent back to the house but then 3 weeks later <laughs> They heard a meowing at the door. They open the door and there is, and Frankie, by the way, is this gorgeous, big, fluffy 16-year-old cat with white paws and a white belly. And he, apparently he looked pretty skinny, but other than that, he was in great health. And the first night he was back, he jumped back into the bed of their seven-year-old son, Remy, and they they were snuggle buddies and they snuggled together and they got their cat back. (laughs) That's great. I like to think of Frankie just kind of eyeing those ashes on the mantle and going, hmm. Uh, did you guys even mourn me at all? Like, were you guys sad? Well, Frankie's owner said, it's true what they say about cats having nine lives, but Frankie, he can't have many left after this. (laughs) Oh, that is such a good story. I got a good story for you. This is not from this week per se. This is about events that unfolded in the 1970s, but I just learned about it because somebody had kind of reposted it on Twitter. Okay. So in the 1970s, the, the TV show Columbo. Oh was hugely popular in the United States, but it was even more popular in Romania. And in fact, the people of Romania loved it so much that when they ran out of episodes, like the national TV network there, because they only made 10 episodes of Columbo a year, Mm -hmm. the people thought that the government was withholding episodes of Columbo from them. Right, this is old school Romania too. Exactly, it was probably, Ceausescu was probably in charge. It was a, not a great scene, so it would have you know, been logical that he was hoarding the episodes of Columbo possibly. <laughs> so there was like unrest in the streets. <gasps> and, so, and so the State Department and some Romanian diplomats got Peter Falk, AKA Columbo, Mm-mm. to go to a hotel room where they had set up a camera and had written these huge signs with phonetic Romanian on them <laughs> For Peter Falk to read into the camera saying, essentially, people of Romania, there are no more Columbos to watch. Please put your guns away and go home. I love it. That's the way I feel when my favorite show, like Ted Lasso, when the there was no more episodes of Ted Lasso, I was like, this must be some kind of a plot to overthrow my pleasure. I know. I mean, it was like the Romanians were like the original binge watchers, like before we had a term for that. They were jonesing for their Columbo. Also being reminded of Columbo sent me down a whole Columbo rabbit hole of watching that show. It really holds up. It's so good. I've based my entire teaching strategy on (laughs) episodes of Columbo, kind of showing up and acting or sometimes Uh actually being like several steps behind everyone in the room and sort of like, I don't even know. What could this be? Oh, wait, you know. 
Uh, Sometimes you like you've delivered your lesson and you start to walk out of the classroom. Then you go, oh, just one more thing. And you deploy the real wisdom. I'm a, a nut for Columbo. I don't know if you knew this, but um, speaking of cats, we have a sort of tan cat. Looks like he's wearing a trench coat. And when he was a tiny kitten and we hadn't named him yet, he used to run into the doorway and then turn around and look at us like he was about to be like, just one more thing. And so we named him <laughs> Columbo. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best news that we heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest onto the show. She's a psychotherapist whose TED Talk, How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life, has over 4 million views. She also writes a weekly column for The Atlantic, and her latest book is the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Let's take a listen to this, our conversation with Lori Gottlieb, recorded in 2019. Lori, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Um, let's just start with talking about how uh, your latest book even got made. Like, how is it even legal? Because it's actual accounts of real people in their real therapy. Right. So I was a writer before I became a therapist. And so anybody who comes to me knows in my informed consent that I can write about what goes on in the therapy room, um, but I have to protect their confidentiality. So when people come to you for therapy, mm -hmm. they know that they're also possibly going to be the subject of your book? Because I feel like I that would really cause me to shut down right. as a client. I don't write about anybody that I'm currently seeing. Okay. And to be fair, I reveal my own therapy in the book. Yes, you do actually, which I also found a little discomforting at times because your perspective as a therapist is that sometimes your patients are being annoying or sometimes uh, they're being frustrating and you notice this. And like as a frequent attendee of therapy, I don't want to know that you are noticing this. <laughs> right, so you know, most people are not boring if they show me who they are. And so the boring people are the people who go off on tangents over and over, or you try to like focus them and they won't focus. Um, you know, they're trying to keep you at bay, but if they actually show me who they really are and they get real with me in the room, you don't have to have a fascinating life to be interesting. I think you're fascinating if you show me your humanity. Um, one of the things that you write about in the book is your own life mm -hmm. and your, you know, a relationship that you were involved in that was, you know, really kind of, I think you said it was a presenting factor for you. Like it was why you started going to therapy or at least it was a big part of what you were talking about with your therapist. How do you, like as a therapist, get a call from your you know, significant other that's really troubling to you and then go walk into the therapy office and sit down and start listening to somebody else's problems and actually be available for them. I think you don't bring that into the therapy room. I mean, I think it's, you know, when I, so because I'm a writer too, if I'm sitting at my computer, I can think about, you know, well, I should go over to Twitter or what should I get have for lunch today or, you know, whatever, or the call that I just had. When you're in the therapy room, you're so focused on what's happening between you and the person that you're talking to for 50 minutes. It's very different from any other experience. You're, you're so engaged in what's happening in the room. And it's kind of like, I like to say, you're paying attention to the music under the lyrics. So they might be telling a story and talking about something, but I'm looking for, what's the music under there? What's the struggle under there? What's the pattern under there? If I was a therapist, the whole time I'd be thinking, 
God, I haven't checked Twitter in a long time. Like, that would be the constant noise in the back of my head, which is why I would not be a very good therapist. Like, how well, are you making... you go to therapy. You're yeah. not checking Twitter in your own therapy sessions. I want to be. I know, but you're not. It's everything I can do to leave my phone alone. And sometimes I think about my phone. And I have an Apple Watch, and sometimes I'll try to look at the Apple Watch <laughs> to see if it's a notification that someone's texting me. The attention of one person, as you can tell, is not enough for me. It needs to be happening from multiple angles. So you must, you must feel awful after you leave therapy because only one person paid attention to you, so actually you come and you feel worse after. I actually, to be honest with you, I feel very good in therapy, but what I find myself doing is showing off. I really want the therapist to think that I'm their best patient because I'm screwed up, but in a delightfully self-aware way. Well, <laughs> when I, so when I went to therapy... I had the same experience. So I was experiencing everything with my therapist that my patients would experience with me. So when I would leave and I'd see somebody else in the waiting room, I'd think, oh, is she more interesting than me? Does he look forward to her sessions more? Who does he like better? It's almost like the sibling rivalry. Because when you're in that room, you think, oh, you don't think about the other patients that the therapist might have. Oh, I do. You do? See, I And I want to be like, I really want them to be like, oh, good. Oh, it's Tuesday, Luke Burbank's gonna be here. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> Which is the like probably least helpful way for me to enter that situation. <laughs> this is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to Lori Gottlieb about her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and also Maybe You Should Take a Break, which we have to right now. So stay with us. Back with more Livewire in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we, we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Let's jump back into our conversation with psychotherapist and author Lori Gottlieb talking about her New York Times bestselling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Despite everything I've said so far on this episode of the show about my own issues, I am a big fan of therapy, and I'm always recommending it to people, probably to an annoying degree. And what I hear from people that don't go to therapy is they're, 
their uh, concept of what it is is that a person is going to basically life coach them or just tell them to break up with this problematic person in their relationship or whatever. And in my experience, that's the least effective thing that could happen. It's, it's like when the therapist that I'm working with kind of helps guide me to an insight that I come to on my own. I mean, is that the whole goal? You're just trying to kind of guide the conversation in a way that will allow the person to figure stuff out about themselves? Right. They need to understand things about themselves. So we're not going to give them advice because that's not very helpful. First of all, what I might do in my life might not be what they should do in their life. And second of all, um, if it goes badly, then they want to blame the therapist, right? You told me to do this. Um, but I think the other thing is that we, um, you know, we have this saying, insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make change out in the world, then it's not really effective. So we want to help people not only have the insight, you know, all of the ways, all of their blind spots, all of the ways that they're always shooting themselves in the foot and ending up in the same place and not, you know, understanding why that pattern keeps recurring, but then they need to change that. So you can't just know what the pattern is, but you've got to go out in the world and do something different. Uh, the story of how you actually became a therapist is kind of interesting because you had this whole other career going. You worked for NBC television. You you worked on the TV show Friends and, uh, coincidentally, ER. Yeah. You know, the things that I did, I worked in Hollywood. I went to medical school. I was a journalist, and then I became a therapist. It looks like they were different careers, but actually they all revolve around story. Student loan debt. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> story in the human condition, right? So in, in the ER, I was, you know, on, on, on the show ER, right, they were fictional stories, but they were very moving stories. And then in the real ER, you were seeing real human drama play out. And as a journalist, you got to tell real people's stories. But as a therapist, you get to help people change their stories. And I feel like they all are related in that way, that we express ourselves through story. And when people come into the therapy room, they're telling me their stories. And I am almost like an editor because I want to help them revise their story. Often they'll come in with a story that is faulty, like I'm unlovable or nothing ever works out for me or it's all my husband's fault. You know? What if it is all their husband's fault? <laughs> it's, it's never all their husband's fault. It's rarely, I would say rarely all their husband's fault. Um, you know, and I think people need to see their own role in what their struggle is so that they can figure out what to do about it. Do you feel like you're more uh, equipped to navigate your life? Because I guess I would think that like, if you learn all these insights that you're helping other people with, you would also be able to apply them to your life. The, the problem with that is that as a therapist, I hold up the mirror to other people so they can see their reflection, they can see the things they aren't seeing. I have the luxury of the vantage point of not living their lives for them. I think it's really hard for us to see ourselves and a lot of times our friends, you know, there's this, I talk in the book about the difference between wise compassion and idiot compassion. And idiot compassion is when you don't want to rock the boat and you kind of just support your friend in whatever they're saying. But it's actually your honesty would be much more helpful than, you know, you're trying to smooth things over for them. And wise compassion is sometimes you need to deliver a compassionate truth bomb but you need to deliver it. And we can't do that for ourselves. We don't see ourselves that clearly. How does somebody, how do you know when to drop the, what did you call it? Com a compassionate truth bomb? You rarely heard the word compassion and bomb in the same sentence, <laughs> almost never. Um, like, how do you know when it's time to drop a compassionate truth bomb and when it's time to just listen to somebody and let them kind of talk about something? 
You should just listen to somebody, but sometimes um, somebody is gunning for you to support their opinion. If they have like a low opinion of their partner, they want you to support that. And you might not agree with that. And so you don't have to support that position. You can support the fact that they feel that way, but you don't have to, to agree with them that their partner is whatever they think their partner is. And it will help them to see that maybe they're, they're playing some role in the situation. And it's very hard to do with a friend because your friend might feel like you're supposed to be taking his or her side. And a therapist doesn't have to do that. We're not taking their side. We're there to help them see something that they aren't already seeing. Do you guys get bummed out when we decide we don't want to be your patient anymore? Well, you know, that's what people think. We, we don't. <laughs> and, and I don't... I don't I, I, maybe like a little bummed, right? What, what I mean by not being bummed is that I feel like you know, we have the worst business model ever, which is that from the first day that you come, our goal is to help you leave us as soon as you can, not because we don't want to see you, but because we want to help you struggle less and we don't want you to be in pain for so long. We're always talking with people about have they met their goals and is there something else that they want to work on, but we're not trying to just keep them there every week. So, um, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go. And you know that from the get-go, that that's the setup. Uh, we're talking to Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist. She has a book uh, out called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. All right, uh, Lori, uh, here on Livewire, we like to try to really get to know our guests on a very deep level. And uh, I feel like we've been getting to know you somewhat, and I certainly feel like I got to know you in reading the book. Uh, but we have one more exercise we'd like to do. And so here on the table uh, in front of me, we have a jar. It has the 10 essential questions of our time in it. We call this the jar of truth. It even has its own little theme music. It does. And this week, because you're a therapist, we're going to put a twist on things. This jar is actually filled with the 10 essential questions about therapy <laughs> of our time. <laughs> okay, so here's how it's going to work. Uh, Lori, uh, you grab a question out of the jar of truth. Uh, hand it over to our announcer, Elena Passarello. Elena will read it. We would like to get your honest answer, right. and uh, because, Lori, our time is also valuable, we're going to try to keep you to about 30 seconds per answer. All right, so question number one from the jar of psychotherapy truth. Lori, how do you wrap up a session on time if someone's in the middle of a story? So we are very aware of the rhythm of a session, and we want to kind of put you back together before you go out into the world. And so when we're looking at the clock, it's not because we're really bored by what you're saying. It's because we want to know how much time do we have while you're in the middle of this very intense moment to kind of help you um, transition back to wherever you're going afterward. So we're not going to leave you at the end of a session where you're just, you know, not wanting to leave at that moment. That was exactly 30 seconds. That was incredible. Wow. Next question. If someone starts angling for free therapy at a party, what's going through your mind? Where are the drinks and how can I get one? <laughs> Short but sweet. I like it. All right, last one. Okay, final question. How can you tell when someone is avoiding the real issue? Ah, um, so this is when they will tell you the same story over and over, and when you try to get underneath the story, they will just repeat what they said over again. Um, 
they're also the people who like in on the car ride over they're thinking about what they're going to say and they already have their opening line mm -hmm. so they don't just come in and sit down and see where their mind goes they have an agenda and their agenda is to keep me out from whatever secret that they don't want to talk about are secrets uh detrimental to therapy can you <laughs> you know I, Car carl jung called secrets psychic poison and i think that's true secrets are incredibly corrosive but secrets are all about shame and so they're the secrets that we keep from the world they're the secrets that we keep from the people close to us and then there are the secrets that we keep from our therapists and the secrets we keep from ourselves my job is to figure out what are the secrets that they're keeping from me so that I can help them figure out the other three areas of secrets. Lori, I feel like this has been a really great time together, but our, our time here is done. <laughs> um, I'd love to pick this up with you next week. Uh, Lori Gottlieb, everybody. <laughs>
How about this one from John? John says, I don't like sleeping on the same side of the bed every night, and my wife thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> that could be a real hassle if your partner wanted to keep switching yeah. sides of the bed because you know how it is. You're married. It's like you get into a groove. Even when I was married and I would go to hotel rooms, I would still <laughs> sleep on my quote-unquote side of the bed because it's just like what my body was used to. I don't – I mean, well, David sleeps in the center of the bed, so – Wow, that's a power move. He doesn't mean to, but he, I think he says it's because he loves me so much. So it doesn't matter what side of the bed I pick. He just sort of follows me over there. Yeah, if I was with someone who wanted to switch sides of the bed each night, I don't. that might could be a deal breaker for me. That would be an unpopular opinion in my life. It's got to be better for you, though, because like all your organs are probably like slumping down into the bed and then you just switch it to like even it out. Like rotating the tires on your car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe it's a popular opinion. I don't know. Nah. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Our next guest's writing has been featured on This American Life and in Harper's, as well as The New Yorker and The New York Times. His nonfiction book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, was published back in 2019. Oh, and also, he was just named the winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for his magazine feature writing. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson from 2019. Mitchell, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm home. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this book is really incredible. I think uh, what a lot of people have said is it's kind of unlike anything they've read before. Um, you grew up in Portland. I think that a lot of people may be hearing this radio show in other parts of the country. They think of Portland as like Portlandia. Yeah. Like comically white. <laughs> Describe the Portland that you grew up in. Okay, so I'll just talk about this street since we're on Alberta. Um, I used to go to this club. It was on 16th in Alberta. It's called the Texan. Texas Annex would stay open till like 2 in the morning. This is where all the like guys who were hustling, all the kind of young women around my age would go. But inevitably, at the end of the night, someone would like start shooting. And so if you didn't want to be caught out there, you would leave a little early. Um, and I did, you know, but sometimes, you know, the, the DJ was really rocking and you just stayed and <laughs> took your chances at the end of the night. Um, what was your childhood like specifically for you being a kid living or being a person of color in Portland? Um, well, I lived here when Northeast Portland was an African-American community. So I didn't really realize how white Portland was, you know. I didn't get a chance to see that until we would drive to like Ben for a basketball tournament or something. And we're like, oh, where are we? This is, no, we're not supposed to be here, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Were you a, like a reader as a kid? Were you interested in, in words and language? Were you like a nerd? Um, I think I was more of an observer. I, I did like language, but I liked kind of the, I, I guess, I'm coming from the oral tradition. Like I listened to a lot of my my uncles and my father, um, who who spoke with a kind of like a poetry and a kind of cadence that was really uh, engaging to me. But I didn't necessarily recognize it wasn't literary. It was more oral. But now you know I feel like that's the kind of language that I'm trying to translate on the page. 
the central idea of this book is is sort of this idea of what you call men on the scale. Yeah, one of them. Yes. What is <laughs> what? What can you explain? Kind of what what you mean by that? So I read an essay in uh, Esquire magazine, like 2011, and it was a guy. It was a married man, and he was talking about cheating on his wife and all his like rationale for cheating and. Um, he was, he seemed, he had a line of hubris. He was like, I don't care what you all think. And, but he also did it anonymously. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, um, I recognize some of his kind of pathologies, um, as some of the things that were very close to how I had grown up thinking about women. And, uh, but I also had several critiques of his argument, one of which was that he did it anonymous. The other one was that he never stopped to think about the fallout of all his harms against women. And I, so I challenged myself to critique that, you know, my history. So the men on the scale are like the kind of classic womanizers, you know, so like from Alcibiades to Lord Byron to JFK to MLK. Um, but really investigating the history, what is their psychology, what kind of like historical context shaped the way that they thought. Um, so yeah, that's one of the ideas. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't want to, I wanted to stick my chest out and say, you know, and I'm going to own these. One of the things I love about this collection is the, I was a person who had this experience, but when I decided to write about it, I decided to look all the way back to ancient Greece, the yeah. 1960s, everywhere in between. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what spoke to you about that kind of kaleidoscopic approach? Uh, you know, I hear a lot of people say, um, you know, you just need to tell your story, like speak your truth. Right. And I think you should. Uh, but to me, that's like just the beginning. You know, that's like... I don't know if it's easy, but I think that, like, there's no craft in speaking your truth, right? There's, like, it doesn't have to be any rigor Thank God there's a public truth. radio show in it. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally all I do. No, no, it's a lot of craft in what you do. I, I see it. And that's, that's the trick, is, like, to have the craft and not let the reader see it. It's like a magic mm -hmm. trick, right? right? Like, all the rhetorical devices you're up here using, there's rhetoric, you know? But we don't see it, I don't think. We're what? just laughing. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that you do in the book, we're talking to uh, Mitchell S. Jackson, by the way. His new book is Survival Math, uh, about uh, his life here in Portland uh, and the lives of a lot of other people in his community here in Portland. One of the things that you do then is you go back and you actually talk to a number of these women who yeah. you interacted with and who mm -hmm. you, I think, by your own admission, did not necessarily do right by. Yeah. What yeah. was that like? Uh, man. <laughs> Uh, one of the most challenging things I've done uh, on or off the page um, because it was not only revisiting the trauma but it was also kind of gauging whether or not like asking them these questions was something that was going to like open another wound like were you re-traumatizing them basically was I re-traumatizing them and then like what was the payoff in the end like would it be worth it even if I you know, had the material and was able to like share it with other people. So I really wrestled with that, um, and and they were very generous in in responding. So not all of them did, um, but they were the ones that did were were very generous, and I, I really appreciate that. Did you struggle with the question of of whether this was for your benefit or theirs? Yes, yeah, I um, and I, maybe I still do, um, but I think, you know. I felt like they gave me the kind of encouragement I needed. Like, if there's something helpful for someone else, 
then I'll do this. I don't think they really did it for me. Um, and I, I guess I would feel more guilty if they just did it for me, but I think they actually felt like something in their experience would be valuable to another you know, young woman or young man even um, who's dealing with these same kind of situations. Uh, you also write in the book about going to jail for selling drugs. Yes, yes. Um, what's that like? Um, well, you know, I'm staying downtown. Uh, and I actually stayed here. I had my book release here a few weeks ago. Stayed in the hotel, but I didn't think about it then. But I, I'm on a floor. I'm on the 19th floor. And if I walk to a certain corner of my hotel, I can look and see the Multnomah County Courthouse, wow. which is where they took me in handcuffs and sent me well, they didn't send me. Well, I went to prison from there, and I was just thinking, like, how odd it is that I'm back here on book tour, uh, <laughs> a block and a half away from where I went to prison. <laughs> so it wasn't a great experience, but it was also an experience where I did see, um, you know, people that I had grown up with. Uh, we're talking to Mitchell S. Jackson. His new book is Survival Math. Uh, what are you hoping people get out of this book? Um, well, that we existed. Um, I think uh, in our national kind of identity, Oregon, Portland's national identity, everywhere I go, I say I'm from Portland. I go, oh my God, like really? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> for real. Um, and, and that happens, you know, all over the country, even when I'm traveling internationally. So I want people to know that there was a community of people here that survived, that thrived. And then also it's a family ledger. Like, 50, 60, 70 years from now, I want my grandchildren to be able to pick this book up and say, like, okay, I have a family history here. But you also have to be willing to accept consequences. Uh, so I wrote this book with compassion. I wrote it. Uh, I don't think I lied in any part of the book. I did very rigorous research. Um, I'm empathetic, I think. And so if I did all of those things, uh, and, you know, with the kind of, I think, a pure intent, if someone disagrees or someone is angered, well, you know, I gotta, that's how it is, you know? I'm, uh, I'm out here living and, you know, that's the story that I receive. I didn't do it to, to harm anyone, but I'm, I'm willing to accept whatever consequence. I mean, I haven't talked to some members of my family for years from the residue years, mm -hmm. um, and I have to be okay with that. What was that transition like from the world of making a novel to yeah. the world of making a collection of very deeply researched and intensely voiced essays? Um, I think it was preparation. Huh. Um, yeah, in the way that the novel teaches you about structure, uh, you have to kind of familiarize yourself with dialogue and, mm -hmm. and knowing what conflict looks like. And um, all of the things that I think make a great novel also are in this. There's, there's a lot of narrative in this. There's short stories in this. There's me imagining scenes that, where I wasn't present. So, so it felt like preparation. If you add to that like hours and hours and hours of research, then you get something close to uh, survival math. Uh, Mitchell, this book is really incredible. Thank thanks you. for writing it. Hope everybody gets it. The book is Survival Math. Mitchell S. Jackson, thanks for being on Livewire. Thank you, thank you. That was Mitchell S. Jackson at the Alberta Rose Theater, recorded back in 2019. 
As uh, we mentioned in the introduction, Mitchell just won the 2021 Pulitzer Prize and a National Magazine Award in feature writing. He wrote a piece for Runner's World about Ahmad Arbery, the black man who was shot while jogging. The piece is titled 12 Minutes and a Life, and it is definitely worth checking out. Amen. It's so good. Our comedian this hour started his comedy career as a radio host for a station in Benghazi in the midst of the Libyan revolution, which really makes my job seem pretty low stakes. Um, He made his national TV debut on Conan, and he's been featured on Comedy Central. He's toured with Pop-Up Magazine. He is so funny. Take a listen to this. It's Mohanad El Shecky on Livewire, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, the people at home listening can't see this, but wow, a standing ovation. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you can see it. You can see it. I got to do my set. Thank you so much. A uh, little about me. My name is Mohanad. I've uh, been living here in the States for five years now. Yeah. Uh, And it's such a weird time to be an immigrant right now here in the States. I don't know if you guys been watching the news lately for the past 200 years. Uh, It's quite rough. It's also weird being an immigrant specifically here in Portland because everyone here has a sign next to their door that would read something like, immigrants are welcome here. And I want to test that so bad. <laughs> yeah, I just want to open someone's front door and just be like, well, I am here. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Amazing. Okay. Mm. Is that the fridge? Okay, mostly LaCroix. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I'll sleep outside. Uh, uh, now, recently, I moved to a new place. I have a new roommate. My new roommate's name is Gion. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name Gion or not. I haven't heard the name myself, so I asked, like, oh, Gion, what a nice name. What does Gion mean? And he said, oh, Gion. Gion is an Italian name that translates to God is great. And I was like, sure, okay. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but I did feel kind of jealous. Because I know for a fact that I cannot name my kid God is great in Arabic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that won't fly. Like, like, like that literally won't fly anywhere. Yeah. Now, I was, I was born Muslim, I was born in a Muslim family, but growing up, I used to, I used to read the Bible a lot. Yeah, because uh, you gotta know what your enemies are up to. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and surprisingly, they were up to the same thing. You're just like, <laughs> I'm like, wow, same book. Who wrote this, Kafka? Uh, <laughs> thank you, I went to college, thank you, thank you, yeah. Yeah, Portland State, they have books, read half of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyone here turned 28 two weeks ago? <laughs> okay, it's just me. Okay, yeah. I was like, wow, okay, I'm 28, now I'm going to write more jokes, and I'm going to, like, 
write more jokes about astrology and how dumb that thing is. And then five hours into research, I was like, wow, I'm such a Pisces. <laughs> yeah, that was a Pisces move right there. Uh, I, used to, I used to work in retail, I quit that a few months ago, uh, to do comedy full time, uh, yeah. Yeah, I wish you were my parents. Uh, <laughs> I worked in retail and I hated it so much. I hated working in retail. I hated that place I used to work at so much. I'm not even allowed to mention it uh, on stage because like, uh, once they learned that I did comedy, they made me sign a legal contract not to bring them up ever again. Uh, yeah, but they do sell iPhones, so... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? It can be anything. Uh, I had this uh, this lady one time who approached me and was like, "Hey, uh, you have an accent. Where are you from?" And I love it when people do that because uh, people try to guess where I'm from all the time, and because it's a fun game for both of us. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm from Libya. Originally, that's where I'm from. To which she replied, <laughs> uh, do you mean Lebanon? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, Lebanon. For 27 years, I called it Libya. And then here you come. Wow, look at that. Look at this walking globe. Mm, yeah, yeah, the customer is always right. Mm, yeah, yeah. I also saw this thing on the news lately that this school district in Pennsylvania, uh, they want to arm students and protect them by giving them rocks. Yeah, and that would work only in one case. Like if the attacker weapon of choice was like uh, scissors. Uh, yeah. If he comes with paper, it's done. <laughs> anyway, my name is Mohan Al-Sheikh. That's my time, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Mohanad Al-Sheikh, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019. An update on Mohanad, he now lives in Brooklyn, where he is a full-time writer for Full Frontal with Samantha B. This is Livewire, coming to you by way of PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Oh, we have to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to have some music from Revel in Dimes that you do not want to miss. So stay with us. It's Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's wrap things up with a little music. Our musical act this hour is a foursome from Brooklyn. They blend the blues, gospel, and rock and roll, and we were so excited. They were able to join us back in 2019 at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Take a listen to this. It's Revel in Dimes here on LiveWire. Hey, everybody. 
did I uh, read right, Kia, that that you were uh, working like your day job in Montauk, yeah. New York, and then two of these guys, I think it's Washi and Eric, were playing. Yeah. And did you just like come up to them and say like, "I'm your new lead singer"? Like, did you basically just insinuate your way into the band? <laughs> Um, not well, kind of. I had a friend kind of do that on my behalf because I gave him the message, and before I knew it, he went up to them and he was like, "I'm Kia's manager, and I think you guys should stay and listen to my set." <laughs> and they did, and it, it worked out. You know? Wait, so so Washi, uh, y- you and Eric are you're playing a gig, and it's the uh-huh. two of you. Yes. And th- somebody comes up and says, "My friend wants to be in the band." Yeah. Well, he said, um, "Would you come back and and." play next week and and let Kia sing with you and and I was like well you know we've never heard her sing but are you, are you giving us a gig <laughs> and, so you were uh, just like hoping? yes we want you to come back and play but she's gonna sing I was like all right we'll, f- we'll figure something out you know <laughs> and you were just hoping that she was a good at singing no no <laughs> No, he they, he offered us some drinks and some dinner to stick around. She happened to be singing later that night. Uh, okay, so you saw some like proof of yes. concept, they would yeah. say. Yeah, and so we're like, okay, I think we're we're, we're good. Eric, we're what did you fun. think about this plan? Uh, we got together the afternoon before, and at the time I was the singer. <laughs> <laughs> was this well, how then, you found out that you were no longer the primary <laughs> singer of the band? Well, I mean, she sings better than me, looks better than me, so I figured we'd go with that. <laughs> that is a really... You've been to a lot of therapy. That's a very healthy, realistic approach to life. All right, what song are we going to hear? Uh, Tough City for Love. It's a song about living in New York. So. Okay. This is uh, Revel in Dimes right here on Livewire Radio.
That was Revel in Dimes, recorded back in 2019 at the Alberta Rose Theater, right here on Livewire. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to semi-regular Livewire guest and always fascinating person, Lydia Yuknovich, about her latest collection of stories, which she describes as a series of devotionals to the outcasts among us. Then, speaking of uh, self-identified outcasts, comedian Atsuko Okatsuka is going to stop by and talk about her insecurities around teenagers, one of my favorite comedy bits we've ever had on the show. Plus, we are going to hear music from the rock group The Black Tones. So make sure you join us for next week's edition of Livewire. All right, a huge thanks to our guests this week. Mitchell S. Jackson, Lori Gottlieb, Mohanad El Shecky, and Revel in Dimes. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Amanda Bird of Seattle, Washington, and Jana Chinamasta of Olympia, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can catch our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.